You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. It's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Celtic Roundhouse and the Gallic Square House and the letter E. The wind blows hard from off the sea. It is heavy with moisture and salt, but beyond, the sky is clear. A good day for sailing. You stand atop the walls of your fortress and cast your eyes down the sheer hundred-foot cliffs, past nests of white seabirds clinging to the black rock, and into your secluded harbor. There, your men ready the ships. The Romans are receding from the south like a great tide, leaving their own people stranded. Wealthy and soft and completely unable to protect themselves, they've relied too long on the powerful Roman army for their protection. But now, that protection is gone, and you can already see the towers of smoke to the south. The wolves have moved in. Soon, you will be one of them. It is not out of cruelty, as you explained to your husband the night before. He is a peaceful soul. He wishes harm on no one. He calls you a bloodthirsty pirate, only half in jest. But as a woman, you've had to be twice as brutal as a man, to keep control in these unforgiving lands, to win the trust of the chieftains so they are not ashamed of following a woman. You must be twice as brutal now. Your husband is no fool. He knows the necessity. Like you, he's seen the land grow colder and the crops shrivel in their fields. Like you, he's seen his own people fall to warring and savagery, killing each other over meager resources. When you led your people here, to this unassailable rock promontory in the middle of the sea, he followed. When you and your people built this fort, hauled rock and timber up the sheer cliffs, he put his hands to work like the rest of you. He is made as hard by this place as you. But it's a different kind of hardness. You chose this promontory as the place of your fortress to protect people like him. The great rock promontory is cut off from the mainland at high tide, accessible only through a narrow, treacherous path up a sheer rock cliff face. Here he may carve the gods' names into his stones, carve the crescent and broken arrow, 
Carve the sea beast of your people's memory, so that all may remember in safety. But you cannot farm here, and hiding behind walls will only make your people look weak and a target. You must build your fearsome reputation, so you will lead your warriors south in their boats, cutting through the waves like daggers through fat. You will pass through the salt spray and the storms, until you reach the rich and defenseless coastlines to the south, and then you will take what you can find. You will feed your own, and you will build your terrifying legend. Far below, your captain is calling. The boats are ready. A fierce wind lifts in your blood. You are not made for the loom and the cradle. Instead, your spirits lift at the sight of a well-trimmed ship, a well-sharpened blade, a rich town with a crumbling wall just asking to be plundered. There will be many such to the south. So you draw the dagger at your waist, and with a whoop of joy, you set your feet to the cliff path that leads down to the sea. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm a Pictish pirate. And this is Ancient <laughs> History Fangirl. You know that intro was about you, Jen. You know it was. <laughs> I know it was. I mean, that is my people in the past. That is exactly what I do. <laughs> exactly. I was just like, I'm just picturing Jen with her sea dagger jumping down the cliff face and embarking on a ship and going to plunder the defenseless south. <laughs> oh, yeah. My wild red hair waving in the background with the wind and the salt. I'm such an evil mermaid. I'm totally on that boat, too. I have a motorcycle. <laughs> Since we're imagining things. Anyway, in our epic series on Hadrian's Wall, that big old four-parter. I feel like that series was a Hadrian's Wall of a, of a series. <laughs> it was. It was a nesting doll, hidden moon door, doorways to nowhere series. It was great. It ended at the end of the world. It was really heartbreaking. Yeah. But anyway, we talked a lot about the gingers upstairs in this series, the wild, untamed people of the Northern Highlands. The people Hadrian built a giant wall supposedly to keep out. We talked about them a lot from a Roman perspective. But as always, there's more to the story. There were a number of different tribes and peoples who lived north of the wall from the hundreds to the 300s AD or thereabouts. Before we move on from the wall, we wanted to try and set aside the Roman lens and get to know them on their own terms. Tribes north of the wall included the Caledoni, the Scotti, the Maeti, the Coriolanotonte, and there's one particular group of people that, as time went on, began to dominate Roman accounts and who may have been descended from one or all of these earlier tribes. That group is the Picts. The Picts burst onto the Romano-British scene as terrifying Celtic pirates, overwhelming Hadrian's Wall from the north, sweeping in from the sea to ravage and burn Romano-British settlements as the power of the Roman Empire slowly receded from Britain. When the Romans left the British Isles for good, fierce Germanic tribes, Angles, Saxons, and others rushed in to fill the vacuum. But in the far north, the Picts hung on, building and ferociously defending a powerful kingdom that lasted more than 600 years. They were the original kings in the north, until around 900 AD, they completely disappeared from the record. They simply vanished. Where did they go? What became of the Picts? In this episode, we're going to find out or advance a few crackpot theories. Exactly. To tell you this story, we have to go back to where we began. Join us as we rewind the passage of time, traveling back past the end of Hadrian's Wall, the violence of the Great Conspiracy, the building of the Antonine Wall, the glory days of the bustling Viki. We're going all the way back to where it began, Agricola's time, Mons Grappius, 39 years before Hadrian's Wall came to be built. 
In our first episode on Hadrian's Wall, we introduced you to a Celtic leader who tried to stand against Agricola's invasion in the northernmost highlands of Britain. His name was Calgacus, and it was the first name of a Scottish person ever written down. Calgacus meant the swordsman. Sometime before 83 AD, the general Agricola, father-in-law of Tacitus, that Tacitus, architect of the British subjugation, lost an infant son. Tacitus reassures us that Agricola took refuge neither in ostentatious fortitude nor in womanish tears, but in waging war. Essentially, his grief caused him to have a terrible expansionist warlike boner. Giant boner tantrum. Well, I mean... It's not an excuse. Everyone grieves differently, but you should not grieve violently by subjugating people. I mean, that should go without saying, but somehow we have to say it in this podcast. Anyway, by this point, most of England and Wales had come under Roman control, but the Romans hadn't been able to touch Scotland. Agricola, powered by his grief, sought to change that. He sent a fleet of ships to block off the coastlines, even as he sent his army marching north, all the way to the Grampian Mountains the start of the Scottish Highlands. And I just want to say, I know I've said this in previous episodes, we are going to use the term Scotland, even though we know that at different points in this episode, Scotland is not the name that people would have called it because it's just easier for people. Yeah, it's easier for us to give you a sense of the geography that we're talking about here. Exactly. So Calgacus rallied his people to fight off the Romans. The confederation of tribes that he built was called the Caledoni, which is what the Romans started calling the region that we now refer to as Scotland. They started calling it Caledonia after this confederation of tribes. On the eve of their battle with the Romans, Tacitus gives Calgacus a rousing speech, which is probably made up. Quote, I have a sure confidence that this day and this union of ours will be the beginning of freedom to the whole of Britain. To all of us, slavery is a thing unknown. There are no lands beyond us. Even the sea is not safe, menaced as we are by a Roman fleet. To us who dwell on the uttermost confines of the earth and of freedom, this remote sanctuary of Britain's glory has up until this time been a defense. Now, however, the furthest limits of Britain are thrown open. There are no tribes beyond us, nothing indeed but waves and rocks, and the yet more terrible Romans, robbers of the world, having by their universal plunder exhausted the land, they rifle the deep. If the enemy be rich, they are rapacious. If he be poor, they lust for dominion. Alone among men, they covet with equal eagerness, poverty, and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a wasteland and call it peace. Caratuchus, who we've talked about in our Patreon episode and also in our Anglesey and in the ancient world Stark family, I think it's the third or fourth episode we talk about him again. He had a very sick burn, which was great. He wound up walking away from what should have been a death sentence with like, hey, a life and all kinds of things. But I would argue, Jenny, that last line, they make a wasteland and call it peace, is the most gripping and shilling line that I have seen in ancient history, particularly describing the empire. Absolutely. And I think it's got to be so, so true. People like Tacitus writing this stuff down. We have no idea where these people got these things. If this somehow this was similar to what Caligacus may have actually said or whether it's entirely fabricated, we don't know, but it is pretty great. So we're going to get back to the story. Tacitus describes how the Caledoni fought with chariots and cavalry using small shields and large unwieldy swords. How Agricola's troops, made up partially of Batavians, pressed in close under the defenses of the Caledonians' big swords, disfiguring their faces, finally provoking a stampeding retreat that swept up infantry, 
cavalry, and chariot riders alike. It was a chaotic scene, resulting in over 10,000 dead on the Caledonian side and just 360 dead on the Roman side. Agricola marched deep into Scotland after that in what can only be called a brutal occupation. He built 17 massive fortifications in valleys all along the Highland Line, controlling traffic into and out of the Scottish Highlands. Along with a network of military roads, fortlets, watchtowers, and a massive legionary fortress at Intuthil that held approximately 6,000 soldiers, this would have been an excellent base for the complete subjugation and control of the indigenous population. But just four years after the Battle of Mons Grapius, Agricola and his army were pulled out of Scotland. The troops were reassigned elsewhere. The people of Scotland had a brief reprieve. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Here's how Cassius Stow describes the people living north of the Wall. Quote, the tribes inhabit wild and waterless mountains and desolate and swampy plains and possess neither walls, cities, nor tilled fields, but live on their flocks, wild game, and certain fruits, for they do not touch the fish which are found in immense and inexhaustible quantities. They dwell in tents, naked and unshod, possess their women in common, and in common rear all their offspring. Their form of rule is democratic for the most part and they are very fond of plundering. Consequently, they choose their boldest men as rulers. They go into battle in chariots and have small, swift horses. There are also foot soldiers, very swift in running and very firm in standing their ground. For arms, they have a shield and a short spear, with a bronze apple attached to the end of the spear shaft, so that when it is shaken, it may clash and terrify the enemy. And they also have daggers. They can endure hunger and cold and any kind of hardship, for they plunge into the swamps and exist there for many days, with only their heads above water. And in the forest they support themselves upon bark and roots, and for all emergencies they prepare a certain kind of food, the eating of a small portion of which, the size of a bean, prevents them from feeling either hunger or thirst. I mean, some of this is just straight up wrong, because we know that people living in Scotland at the time did have complex societies and sometimes dense urban settlements. They weren't like just, you know, living in swamps. I mean, it's possible the Romans just never actually occupied one of their cities. They definitely did besiege cities up there, which we're going to talk about in this episode. I also think it's really interesting that last part, they prepare a certain kind of food, the eating of a small portion of which the size of a bean prevents them from feeling either hunger or thirst. You know what that reminds me of, Jen? Oh, I know what it reminds you of. It reminds me of the same thing. Lumbus bread from Tolkien. Uh-huh. 
from Lord of the Rings. I am so curious as to what that might be, what it might be based in. Now that we've gone down a deep Mithras mushroom rabbit hole, I'm like, was there a mushroom involved? Was it hallucinogenic? Is that why people were plunging into the swamps and existing there for days? I don't think it would have been hallucinogenic, but could it have been something that dead in the sentence to cold? It's super fascinating. So just 35 years after Agricola pulled out of Britain, the first ground was broken for Hadrian's Wall. There is a lot of speculation about the true purpose of Hadrian's Wall, including defense, customs control, and even just a giant group project to keep the legions busy. We talk about that in our previous episodes. But it's likely that one of its purposes, at least, was subjugating the population to the north. And here's a very specific example of that happening. So, Jen, you've heard of Masada, right? I have absolutely heard of Masada. It is heartbreaking. So Masada was, and still is because it's still there, a dramatic fortress located in what today is modern-day Israel. And it's the site of a very famous siege in which approximately 960 Jewish people took their own lives rather than be captured by the Romans. The hill tribes of Caledonia may have had their own Masada at a place called Burnswork Hill. Burnsburg Hill is a Celtic Iron Age fort about eight miles from Lockerbie, Scotland. It's located on a high hill, and I've seen a documentary on this. They actually showed you like a bird's eye view of this hill fort. It's like a circular hill fort on top of a big hill. And on either side, flanking that hill, are two immediately recognizable large Roman military forts. They're like camp forts, the signature rectangular shape with like the rounded corners, like a deck of playing cards. It's like exactly what the forts at Hadrian's Wall looked like in the outline. These forts, there was one on one side of the hill and one on the other side, and they could contain approximately 6,000 Roman soldiers. They were siege camps built to bring this fortress down, and all this went down right around the time the Antonine Wall was built, just about two years before that. So here's what happened. So around 140 AD, just about 12 years after Hadrian's Wall was completed, the Roman emperor Antoninus Pius ordered his general, Quintus Lollius Urbicus, to march north, subjugate Caledonia, and push the Roman Empire's northernmost boundary further north, about 100 miles, where the Antonine Wall would be built about two years later. A number of tribes lived in the Scottish lowlands that were in Urbicus's crosshairs, and one of them was the Selgovae. When Urbicus marched his army into their territory, the Selgovae fled to their hill fort at Burnswork Hill. Urbicus besieged it, building siege camps on either side of the well-defended hill. You can still see the earthworks that would have supported the large, heavier artillery that the Romans hauled up there to break the walls. Huge scorpion ballistas that could easily fire 27-inch bolts up over the walls and into the hill fort. The Roman attackers would also have had catapults firing huge stones into the hill fort and slingers firing lead shot that were basically ancient world bullets. The Selgove defenders would have been extremely underdressed in comparison. With only scant armor and swords, probably few, if any, long-range weapons. And it wouldn't have been just military men in that hill fort. The entire community, men, women, and children, would have taken refuge huddling behind the walls of that Iron Age hill fort as the air filled with deadly ballista bolts and catapult stones and lead sling bullets. Very little is known about exactly how this battle went down. The specifics are not well documented. But it's likely that everyone in the Selgove tribe, men, women, and children, were killed by the Romans. If any survived, they would have been taken into slavery. Just two years later, Antoninus Pius 
ordered the Antonine Wall erected and built Arthur's Oon to commemorate his general's subjugation of the Scottish islands. The legions installed elaborately carved stone plaques into the wall depicting Roman soldiers brutalizing the local indigenous populations. After that, the tribes to the north of the wall were relatively quiet until 68 years later, when the governor of Britain wrote to the new emperor, Septimius Severus, and told him that the Scottish tribes were in revolt, sweeping over the wall and destroying everything they could get their hands on. Severus responded by staging an enormous invasion of Scotland, with a goal that was nothing less than genocide. So Severus brought approximately 30,000 troops, an enormous number, into Caledonia, reoccupying old Roman forts and building bridges, roads, and one of the largest Roman military fortresses ever discovered in this area. But the allied Scottish tribes, fearing complete annihilation, thwarted him at every turn, leading him on a wild goose chase throughout the highlands and refusing to engage directly. Severus was not well. He was pretty sick. He had to be carried in a litter during most of this war. After peace talks failed, his son Caracalla tried to lead a punitive expedition with the goal of killing everyone he came across, men, women, and children, and essentially wiping rebelling tribes off the map because he was a giant sack of peni. I'm doing the off-brand version so that Queens doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sue us. <laughs> that is the Latin way you would say it. I mean, I'd have to look up what the word for sack is, but peni is the plural of penises. There we go. We're being accurate. I could just be fucking that up. I think that's true of like everything we say on here. So this campaign was not successful, not least because one, Caracalla was an absolute shit leader who his troops refused to follow, and two, Severus died in York two years after the war began. Caracalla and his brother Geta had to withdraw from Scotland and go consolidate their power in Rome, and that was an absolute shit show. We talk about it in Child Emperor's Sharks in the Womb. So Severus and Caracalla didn't get the genocide they wanted in Scotland, thank fuck, but their actions up there would have been disastrous for the local population anyway. Local tribes were wiped out whenever they were caught. Men taken prisoner were marched from one end of Scotland to the other as a display of Roman conquest, and then hauled back to Rome and devoured by beasts in the arena for the amusement of the crowds. This is what happened to warriors and resisting guerrilla armies when they lost. After Severus left, our record of what was happening with the tribes in the Scottish Highlands went quiet. No Romans wrote about them, so we can't really say what they did next. However, I think it's pretty safe to say that by the early 200s AD, the Scottish tribes, the Maete, the Brigantes, the Vagomagi, the Teixali, the Ariani, and others, they had fucking had it. They had been driven from their homes, forced to abandon their fields and livestock, lost everything they had, seen family members sold into slavery, been raped and pillaged and murdered and subjugated by invading Roman armies. This had been going on for two centuries. They were fucking tired of it. They banded together to form a new tribe or confederation of tribes, forged in the fire of Roman brutality, with experience fighting Roman armies on their own ground and winning. They were royally pissed off, and they gave absolutely no goddamn fucks. That is who the Picts were. The Picts were first mentioned by a Roman writer named Eumenius in 297 AD, and it's believed that their name meant the Painted People. But that's not necessarily the name they would have called themselves, at least not initially. Well, later on, when that name had some street cred, I think they embraced it. Sure. So it's not known at this point whether the Picts were a pre-existing tribe who had only now caught the attention of the Romans, or as Jenny suggested earlier, a confederation of tribes banded together to defend against Roman pressure. Roman Britain began to devolve in the 300s AD. During this time, the Picts appear in the ancient sources as pirates and raiders, 
sailing down from the northernmost highlands, bypassing Hadrian's Wall, and pillaging Romano-British communities in southeastern Britain. As more Roman troops got pulled from Roman Britain to patch up the collapsing empire in other areas, the Picts and other marauding tribes poured through the gaps in the Roman defenses, terrorizing Romano-British and Celtic people to the south. Around 407 AD, the last Roman usurper from Britain, Constantine III, pulled all the legions and auxiliaries in Britain to help him in his rebellion. Ammianus Marcellinus tells us that, quote, this is definitely very negative about the Picts and the Scots here, quote, no sooner were the Romans gone than the Picts and Scots, like worms, which in the heat of the midday come forth from their holes, hastily land again from their canoes, differing one from another in manners, but inspired with the same avidity for blood, and all more eager to shroud their villainous faces in bushy hair than to cover with decent clothing those parts of their body which required it. God. Can we just stop for a minute? Because number one, earthworms do not come up in the midday sun, but you know what does, Jenny? Snakes, because they need to like come up and get warm. And you know, worm, that word, that kind of meant like an ancient dragony snake. I don't know what the history of like worms as a like a snaky kind of dragony thing is. I know that there's a whole folklore and history in the history of like the British Isles. I don't know exactly what he means here when he says worm, because as far as I know, you don't see earthworms coming up in the middle of the day. They tend to come up when their holes get flooded. So according to the monk Gildas, writing in the 500s AD, the extremely vulnerable Britons, left behind by the Roman army and now under attack from the Picts, sent a missive to the Roman general Aetius begging for help. Quote, the barbarians drive us into the sea. The sea throws us back on the barbarians. Thus two modes of death await us. We are either slain or drowned. But Aetius had his hands full. He was dealing with Attila the Hun. Ever heard of him, Denny? Ever heard of Attila the Hun? <laughs> <laughs> so Aetius did not send troops to Britain. Gildas tells us that, in fear of marauding picks from the north, the desperate Britons invited the Anglo-Saxons into their country to protect them. But then the Saxons turned around and subjugated the Britons as well. Here's what Gildas describes happening to the Romano-British communities at the hands of Anglo-Saxon and Pictish raiders. Quote, all the columns were leveled with the ground by the frequent strokes of the battering ram. All the husbandmen routed together with their bishops, priests, and people, whilst the sword gleamed and the flames crackled around them on every side. Lamentable to behold, in the midst of the streets lay the tops of lofty towers, tumbled to the ground, stones of high walls, holy altars, fragments of human bodies covered with livid clots of coagulated blood, looking as if they had been squeezed together in a press and with no chance of being buried, save in the ruins of the houses or in the ravening bellies of wild beasts and birds, with reverence be it spoken for their blessed souls. Some, therefore, of the miserable remnant, being taken in the mountains, were murdered in great numbers. Others, constrained by famine, came and yielded themselves to be slaves forever to their foes. Some others passed beyond the seas with loud lamentations. I mean, it's so colorful, right? The fragments of human bodies and clots of coagulated blood everywhere. Being buried in the bellies of wild beasts and birds. Just wow. Gildas really brings it home here. He's a colorful writer. If it happened, it's heartbreaking. If he's dramatizing it. It's also heartbreaking, but it does feel to me very much what a siege would have looked like, you know, based on what we know of like siege warfare at the time. Yeah, I mean, it does feel real to me when I'm reading it. And I will say that a lot of this is contested. Most historians now do not take Gildas's account at face value 
because he was a Christian and this um, this wasn't like a piece of historical writing. This was a sermon. And his point was, I think, talking about how terrible the Anglo-Saxons were and what a giant mistake it was to invite them into the country. Although I don't know that it actually is the case that the Romano-British invited the Anglo-Saxons in. Like, I think they saw an opportunity because the Roman power was receding from Britain and they came in. Yeah. I mean, now that the Romans are gone out, there's no one who's really going to defend all these wealthy cities. Of course, they're vulnerable to outside invaders. Yeah, they're sitting ducks. So, I mean, I think Gildas has a, he has an agenda here. And a lot of historians think that if he's not outright lying, he's definitely exaggerating. My feeling on Gildas, and I've talked about this before, is that when you read his account, it just leaps off the page and it does feel very real. Like this dude has seen some shit. It may not be the shit he's specifically talking about here. And I believe he's writing about 100 years after the fact, if not a little bit more. But in the 500s AD when he lived, this stuff still would have been going on. And he would have possibly talk to people who had, if not witnessed it, were just a couple generations off from witnessing it. Look, this stuff still would have been going on. uh, And the people who were experiencing it might have been descendants of the Romano-British. I feel like it could be like a Euripides thing where he's talking about one thing in the past to make a comment on what's going on in the present. Or extrapolating the present back to the past. Exactly. We don't know because there's not enough written about that time period to really tell us. I mean, counterpoint, Gildas does say some things that are demonstrably wrong. Like, for example, he said Septimius Severus built the Antonine Wall, which is wrong. He was wrong about who built Hadrian's Wall. And for centuries afterward, people propagated misconceptions that they got directly from Gildas about who built these two walls. Also, a lot of modern historians believe that the archaeological record during this time doesn't support a scenario of widespread violence after the Romans withdrew because they aren't finding just bodies everywhere. So anyway, those are some counterpoints. I think personally, just being a rando who reads a lot, that there's probably reason to believe that even if Gildas was exaggerating here, shit in Britain was pretty dire at this time when the Romans withdrew. And according to the Romans, at least, the Picts were major instigators in that. I can't blame them if they were. With the Romans withdrawing from the south and with climate change and fewer resources in the north, it makes sense. In the ancient sources, the Picts were pirates, mainly ocean-going raiders and pillagers who constantly terrorized the Romano-British population. But was there more to them? Fuck yeah, there was. There is a folk tradition in Scotland of the Picts as an ancient people who were there long before the Celts, small of stature, dark-skinned and dark-haired, living in Neolithic grave mounds. In this tradition, the Picts are a mystical people who have magical abilities and a strong connection to the earth and the past. I have read a lot of Rosemary Sutcliffe, and that's kind of where I have seen this a lot. You know, the Picts being depicted as this ancient culture that was there long before the tall, blonde, Celtic people. I've seen them connected sometimes with Stonehenge and other Neolithic monuments. And I've seen, you know, the trope that they live in Neolithic grave mounds or associated with standing stones and that kind of thing. It totally makes me think weirdly of like the Fae that we talked about earlier, like this ancient race of people who live in grave mounds, although not quite the same. Yeah, it does kind of tie in a little bit to the Irish tradition of the Tuatha de Danann and other supernatural people like the Morrigan and the Banshee who lived in Neolithic grave mounds. Yeah, and there may be a grain of truth that there was an ancient race of small, dark-haired and dark-skinned people in the British Isles long before the people we know of as the Celts got there. There's one school of thought that suggests the people who built the famous Neolithic monuments in Britain were short-statured, dark-skinned people who originally came from Iberia. In fact, Cheddarman, a skeleton found in Somerset, England, dating from 7100 BC, 
was believed to have had curly black hair and dark skin. There's no reason the Picts, or the confederation of tribes that formed the Picts, couldn't have predated their first mention in Roman sources by a lot. In fact, there's a school of thought that the Picts were actually a pre-Celtic people who rose to prominence when other Celtic people were killed by the Romans in large numbers. But the way the Roman sources describe them, the people who had met the Picts, some Roman writers describe them as tall and blonde or redheaded, similar to other Celtic peoples. In addition, their language is believed to have been a Celtic language related to Britonic, a form of early Celtic language prominent in the British Isles prior to the Anglo-Saxon period. Whether the Picts were Celtic or not, and the word Celtic is, is really hard to define anyway, you know, like what is Celtic really? Is it cultural? Is it genetic? What makes somebody Celtic? It's a giant rabbit hole I'm not going down now. Anyway, whether the Picts could have been described as Celtic or not, whatever that means, it's clear that their culture wasn't the same as other Celtic cultures around them. The picture on that is a bit fuzzy, but there's a lot that makes the Picts unique. So let's take a look at Pictish archaeology and see if it can't sharpen the picture for us. There are several housing traditions in ancient Scotland that we've seen associated with the Picts. One is the Cranog, which is a house built on an artificial island. Another is the Brock, which is a kind of thick, hollow-walled tower associated with the Iron Age and pre-Iron Age Scotland. And a third is the ubiquitous Celtic roundhouse, made of wood, stone, and wattle and daub, with a conical thatched roof. All of these housing traditions were present in Scotland from as early as the Neolithic, so it's not impossible to say that the people we now know as the Picts lived in houses like these. But we're a little hesitant to say that any of these structures were specifically Pictish. The Cranogs were mainly found on the western coast of Scotland, whereas the traditional Pictish kingdoms were mainly found in the east, north, and central areas. The Brocks stopped being built roughly a few centuries before the Picts came onto the scene, although there is evidence that people continued to live in small settlements around the Brocks later, letting the Brocks themselves fall into disrepair. And the roundhouses, well, we'll get to those in a minute. The reason that I'm separating this out is I'm trying to get at what is distinctly Pictish rather than what is associated with the land around which Pictish ancestors might have lived. There is another school of thought that says that the Picts were in fact a confederation of tribes that arose at least partially due to pressure from Roman invasions. That is kind of my thesis here. It's definitely not the only thesis. It could be contested. I am not an expert in this. This is just what I find convincing. And if that was true, you might expect to see some changes in the archaeological record that suggest a new culture. And there are, there are some changes in the archaeological record that can be traced right back to around the beginning of the 300s AD, which is when the Picts were first written about. One of the big changes was that those ubiquitous Celtic roundhouses disappeared. The Celtic roundhouses can be found all over Britain, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. I think in Gaul they were square. Of course they were. Why do you say that? I think there is probably some overlap between, in different places in Gaul, between probably Germanic housing and Gallic housing, which would have resulted from like having a rectangle sort of longhouse and a square one and maybe meeting in the middle. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because a Germanic longhouse would have been square. Almost like I've been paying attention to the podcast. Can I have a gold star now? Here's your cookie. Here you go. No, I don't want a cookie. I want a gold star. I want a good job gold star. Okay, well, I'm not a gold star person, so I didn't buy any of those for you for making smart comments. 
I just have to let you make smart comments for the fun of it. For the thrill of just like letting my brain help educate others, maybe. Why are we even doing this podcast? Maybe because of that. (laughs) Maybe. We're not sure that's what's (laughs) happening here. I'm trying to talk about the Celtic roundhouses. I'm trying to talk about the Gallic square houses. What's wrong with you? God, we just like talk about our shape houses all day. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Celtic roundhouse and the Gallic square house and the letter E. (laughs) (laughs) And the number 73, because that's how many miles long Hadrian's Wall was. So anyway, the Celtic roundhouses were large circular structures ranging in size from 15 to about 45 feet around. Build of whatever natural materials were to hand, usually wood or stone frameworks with wattle and daub on top, and a large conical thatched roof that swept down almost to the ground. They kind of look like big mushrooms. They're really neat. These ancient houses were in use all the way back into the Neolithic, and they were iconically Celtic. But around when the Picts emerged, around the early 300s AD, the Celtic roundhouses largely disappear from the archaeological record in Scotland. This is according to Gordon Noble and Nicholas Evans, authors of The King in the North. According to them, the countryside seems to have emptied out, and people stopped living in small, unfortified agricultural societies and roundhouse villages that they lived in for millennia. What replaced the roundhouses was hill forts. Hill forts had been in use before in pre-Roman Scotland, but they fell out of use around the time the Romans occupied Britain. In the book, Strongholds of the Picts, the author Angus Constam suggests that this may have been because it was less strategically advantageous to concentrate your population in a very visible fort that the Romans could crack. You know, they were breaking into these fortresses. You see Roman armies breaking into Celtic hill forts all over the place when they're conquering Celtic areas. I mean, you see that at Burnsburg Hill. I think it makes total sense that they might have just been like, fuck it, we're not going to concentrate our people in a big place where the Romans can get to us. Absolutely not. But around the time the Picts emerged in Roman records and on for about six centuries after that, people in Scotland began living in hill forts again. Some of these hill forts were on coastal promontories, surrounded on all sides by the sea and almost inaccessible. There are some you can only get to at low tide through extremely steep, treacherous paths. These were the maritime strongholds of the pirate Picts who terrorized the Roman Britons. There are not a lot of Pictish hill forts. And the archaeology is very fuzzy at those that have been found. Some of these forts show signs of habitation going all the way back to the Neolithic and later than the Pictish period. And it looks like in a lot of places, the Picts rebuilt and took up habitation in pre-existing forts. But the Pictish hill forts that have been excavated are frequently absolutely spectacular. One of the most spectacular is at a place called Tap O'Noth. Tap O'Noth is a hill fort located about 46 miles northwest of Aberdeen. It stands on a promontory over 800 feet above the surrounding plain. Evidence of habitation at Taponath goes all the way back to 2000 BC, but the main settlement may date to around the 3rd century AD, right at the start of Pictish culture. Taponath is a vitrified hill fort. These were really something special. Vitrified hill forts have stone walls that show signs of being subject to heat so intense that the stone melted and fused to one single solid wall of glass. There is no mortar in these walls. It's the vitrification of the stone that holds it together. Archaeologists are baffled by these forts, which are found throughout Europe but concentrated in Scotland. Experiments to recreate the effect have mostly failed and produced cracked walls that fell apart. The fires would have had to reach 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, about twice as hot as the hottest fireplace, to cause the glass wall that you see at these hill forts. 
They would have had to burn for days. Just imagine standing on the plains far below, seeing the massive fort at the top of the hill light up the night sky for miles around. This must have been an awe-inspiring and absolutely terrifying sight. People have no idea how the hell this was done. Vitrified hill forts are so mysterious that they attract a lot of conspiracy theories. Jen in particular is very susceptible to these conspiracy theories. <laughs> Maybe a wizard did it. That's one. Maybe it was atomic bombs set by aliens. That's another one. Maybe it was a dragon. Possibly a worm. Fire-breathing worm. Historians have suggested more realistic-sounding reasons that I find equally far-fetched, like maybe the burning was caused by too many signal fires, or maybe it happened during a Roman siege, even though that didn't happen anywhere else there was a Roman siege. Or maybe it was some kind of religious ritual, which is what people say when they have literally no idea what they're looking at. But it's more likely that the walls were vitrified on purpose to strengthen them systematically as a form of defense. We just have absolutely no idea how they did it. Volcanoes. <laughs> how would it... How, could you explain that, please? I don't... <laughs> what do you mean volcanoes? How would it be done by volcanoes? <laughs> it's possible. I just want to say volcanoes. Why don't you um, uh, put some thought behind that there? Because I'm really curious about this theory. I mean, to me, it sounds like a really hard, glassy stone, like an obsidian, which like I feel like maybe there was volcanoes being mined somewhere that had erupted at some point in time. Like we know there's thermal hot springs under Britain. You know, Arthur's Seat in Edinburgh is an extinct volcano. I don't know. Maybe they got something from there. Who knows? I don't believe that there were any active volcanoes at the time. So I don't think that they were building forts on top of active volcanoes and then letting the active volcanoes melt the walls. No, I don't believe there were any active volcanoes in Britain at this period in time. We do know there were thermal hot springs. If you have a thermal hot spring, something must be feeding it. Where is the heat coming from? I mean, that's not even the point. The point is, how would they get these walls to melt in these forts? And they would have to bring the, the hot spring up to the fort or build the fort on top of a hot spring hot enough to melt stone. Or they just melt the stone and then bring the stone over. It's not just pieces of obsidian hauled from somewhere else. It's like all melted in situ at the same place. Okay, well, could it be possible that the heat inside those forts at a certain point in time was that hot to melt it like that? That's what is likely, actually, is that there was some mechanism by which they were heating these walls so much that they were melting the stone together. Were they making like a tiny baby volcano in there with the heat? that actually melted the stone and turned it into little obsidian. This is an interesting crackpot theory you're advancing here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Were they creating tiny black holes and using that, using that to like melt the stone? Nobody has any idea how they did it. It's one of those mysteries of ancient history that we can't solve. Yes, you're probably right. Probably whatever they were doing inside those hill forts at a certain point in time got hot enough to essentially fuse the walls together. And that's how they had this vitrified stone walls. My theory of did it get as hot as a volcano in there is essentially the same thing. But I just made it sound more ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Tapanoth. So Tapanoth is one of these mysterious vitrified hill forts that might have had like a volcano center, but we don't know. A crunchy stone outside and a soft volcano center. <laughs> I mean, the heat from which inside might have gotten as hot as something like a volcano. That's all I'm proposing. I did a little bit of a dive into which volcanoes were active in Europe at this point in time. And there weren't any actual volcanoes that it looks like were active in the 300s. There were some in the 400s. Certainly none in the British Isles, but it is possible that inside these hill forts, they were getting as hot as like a baby volcano. Oh, I think that you may be right. I think they had some kind of mystical, magical 
And it had to be scientific in some way or they wouldn't have been able to do it. Or perhaps a wizard did it some way to heat those walls that hot. That's clear. I'm so curious to know how they fed that fire and also kept it so enclosed to melt those walls. One day we will know the mystery. Until then, baby volcano. I'm also not 100% clear how old the vitrified part of the vitrified hill forts were. Like, I'm not 100% sure that the picks were doing it or just taking and appropriating older forts because the vitrified wall bit is hard to date. It's just melted stone. True. Anyway, the vitrified wall encloses a space about 328 by 100 feet. And there's another rampart outside it that encompasses a much larger area of about 17 acres. It's not clear how old the vitrified wall is, but the second rampart was built around the 3rd century AD, right at the start of the Pictish period. Archaeologists have discovered signs of approximately 800 huts crammed into this space. If each one had a small family in it, say four people, this means 3,200 people would have been living in this small space. Contrary to what people often believe about this time period, this would have meant that the Picts had highly condensed even urban towns that were major centers of power in their regions. From the very beginning, hill forts like Taponoth were strongholds of the Pictish pirates, the places of safety from which they planned and launched their raids against Romano-British communities to the south. Another part of archaeology that is distinctly Pictish are the Pictish stones. So these are standing stones with really distinctive carvings on them. Pictish stones generally date from around the 6th to 9th centuries AD, although they are notoriously difficult to date. Many have not been left in situ, like they were moved somewhere else. So archaeologists can't date them based on what is found around them, which is hard because they're just like as just a stone and without context of understanding what the symbols mean and when they dated to. It's hard to tell how old that carving is on that stone. Some of the earliest Pictish stones ever found in Pictish carvings date to around the 300s AD, again, at the very beginning of Pictish history. You can find standing stones all over the British Isles. Like, standing stones in, the, in and of themselves are not Pictish. But Pictish stones are really different from other standing stones found in the Neolithic. The cultures of England, Wales, Ireland, and other Celtic tribes in Scotland all seem to have influenced each other with their art, but there's nothing like Pictish art anywhere else in the British Isles. Pictish stones are classified into three groups, class one, two, and three, and class one stones, the purely pre-Christian ones, dating from the third to the eighth century, have various symbols that repeat all the way from the earliest times. These symbols are mysterious and untranslated. They include the double disc and zed rod, two circles that look like shields bisected by what looks like a broken spear in the shape of a Z or Z. The crescent and V rod, an upside down crescent bisected by what looks like an arrow in the shape of a V, the mirror and comb and the notched rectangle and many others. Other images on the stones include animals, birds, fishes, and people. Some are stylized animals. One example, the Pictish beast, is an unidentified animal that repeats a lot and which we are just going to go out on a limb and say is Nessie. I think it's an elephant. I think we should have this debate on another episode. Yeah, Jen and I have um, gotten into a lot of text fights over what the Pictish Beast actually is, and I think we're going to expand it to its own episode, guys, so get excited. And it will be, like, possibly the only episode this season not about genocide. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Woohoo! 2021 is coming up Millhouse. I mean, Jen. <laughs> and Jenny, it's coming up Fangirl. It's coming up Fangirl. 
So some of the Pictish stones feature hunting scenes with people hunting on horseback with large dogs. One memorably includes a woman hunting on horseback. She was riding side saddle. Interesting. Mm, very interesting. That's on a class one Pictish stone, I believe. So class one is a pre-Christian Pictish stone. That's amazing. What seems to be going on here is that there was definitely Christianity in the British Isles, possibly from as early as the 300s AD and definitely up into the 800s AD, which is when some of the later class one Pictish stones occur. I think it's more about what the images are than whether they predate Christianity or not. So like class one stones have only non-Christian images on them. Class two stones have a mix of Christian and non-Christian imagery, and class three stones have only Christian imagery. And they're later. Like, they're all roughly correspond in terms of chronology, but I don't think it has to do with, like, a hard divide of this is when Christianity wasn't in the area and this is when it was. Anyway, so I was talking about the hunting scenes, how there was a woman on horseback in one of the hunting scenes, and she was riding side saddle. Some of the Pictish stones contain battle scenes, including a raven pecking at a corpse, which is bringing up just all these sort of... All those Morgan feels, man. All of the Morgan feels, all the Banshee feels, like there's stuff from the Gauls, ravens and corpses on battlefields and all kinds of stuff like that. It's thought that this one, the Abrolemno stone, commemorates a major Pictish battle. So there have been many theories about what these stones mean. Throughout the ages, historians have suggested that the stones are gravestones, commemorations of tribal alliances or battles, or territorial markers. One of the more modern theories is that the symbols are a type of writing system and that the writing stands for specific names, probably the names of chieftains, kings, and other prominent people in Pictish communities. Interestingly, and this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I just want to go down it for a second, another clue as to Pictish life that we get from the stones is that the Picts may not actually have been painted people. They may not have had tattoos. Pictish people are never depicted on the stones as having tattoos. And if they did paint their bodies, whether temporarily or permanently, it's unlikely that they or really any British people at all would have used woad. I want to talk about woad for a second because I think Julius Caesar in his commentaries describes the British as like blue painted people and there's this thing about how they maybe used woad to paint their bodies. Like you see this in Braveheart, right? Like everyone's painting their faces blue before a battle. You see this in King Arthur, the 2004 version or something with Kira Knightley where they're all painted blue and you're just like, really? Well, they're all painted blue and everyone refers to them specifically as the woads which I think happens nowhere else except in that movie. So woad is a dye derived from a flowering plant that's related to mustard and cabbages. In the ancient world, it was used to produce an indigo blue dye that was used for textile dyeing, but it's very caustic on the skin. As a tattoo ink, it would burn itself on the skin, producing significant scarring, which scarification was a thing in the ancient world as well, still a thing in some cultures in the modern world. And it may have been used to produce a very painful method of body alteration like kind of a scarification thing. But even if it was used that way, the scars don't come out blue. So it's possible that the Picts did tattoo themselves long ago, but the practice fell out of fashion around when most Pictish stones depict them. And it's also possible that they never did in the first place. And the Romans just said they did as a means of othering them and classing them as quote unquote barbarians. Let's get back to those Pictish stones, shall we? One clue as to the meaning of the Pictish stones might be found in the Ogham script that runs up the edges of some of these stones. Ogham is originally an Irish writing system, in use from around the 1st century BC, but the dates here are fuzzy, to the 9th century AD. 
Ogham inscriptions in Old Irish have been translated and found to be personal names. The Picts adopted Ogham for their own use, but they didn't write in Irish. They wrote in Pictish. So the vast majority of Ogham script on Pictish stones is untranslated. The translations that scholars have made thus far have been largely nonsensical, except that one word, adern, or adernon, seems to repeat a lot, and we have no idea what this means. So what have we gleaned about Pictish life from what we've seen in the archaeology and the ancient sources? We know that the Picts were extremely talented artists, but they were also a people who had to survive in an extremely violent age. The Romans, and sources sympathetic to them, paint the Picts as aggressors, violent raiders who came by sea to terrorize the Britons, and that may be true. But the Picts were also a people under attack. Forged under the fire of Roman aggression, the Picts faced violence even after the Romans left. Angus Constum, author of Stronghold of the Picts, says, quote, The Picts certainly needed strongholds. For a people on the edge of the known world, they seemed to be surrounded by enemies. To the southwest lay the Britons of Strathclyde, whose kings ruled from the imposing fortress of Alt Clute, now Dumbarton. The Britons to the southeast were less able to defend themselves, and eventually their lands were conquered by a newcomer, the Angles of Northumbria, whose territory soon extended as far north as present-day Edinburgh, then called Dunedin. Another threat appeared from the west in the form of the Scots of Dalriada, Irish settlers who soon carved out a homeland in Argyle, anchored on the stronghold of Dunod. So let's take a minute to talk about these other people that shared the Picts' world. So first, let's look at the Angles. The Angles were a Germanic people. They may have originated around northern Germany and southern Denmark, and that's according to Tacitus. They were often linked with another Germanic tribe, the Saxons, hence Anglo-Saxons. But it's the Angles who give modern-day England its name. The Angles came into the British Isles as the power of Rome receded, starting in the 300s and 400s AD. In the ancient Roman sources, this is often described as violent. The Angles were Germanic pirates and raiders. Eventually, the Angles founded a number of their own kingdoms in the area, including Northumbria in 653 AD. The borders of Northumbria may have been laid on top of an older British kingdom, which the Anglo-Saxons conquered. This is based on the place names that are predominantly British, as well as forts taken over by Anglo-Saxons that have older origins. Let's also look at the Dalriada. So the Dalriada were theoretically originally an Irish people who lived in Western Ireland. According to the medieval sources, a large group of them emigrated to Eastern Scotland, possibly around the 500s AD. Some archeologists contest this. They believe that there was just a lot of cultural exchange between the Irish and Scottish sides and coasts in these regions, resulting in a shared culture, so that the Dalriada in Scotland identified more with their Irish compatriots than the other tribes in Scotland. Regardless of how the Dalriada came to be in Scotland, however, they were the Picts' western neighbors, and these two were often at war. The Dalriada were also called the Scotti, and they're the people who eventually Scotland was named after. And just to be clear, these people are not to be confused with the Scots or the Scotti that appear in ancient Roman sources that refer to events about 400 years prior. The Roman sources use that term to refer to different people who were in Scotland at that time, and it's super confusing. So let's talk a little bit about the Romano-British. What happened to the Romano-British, the population of native mostly Celtic people who lived under Roman rule and who were Romanized to various degrees after the Romans left. Scholars are split on this. Some say they were wiped out by the Anglo-Saxons, 
in a massive genocide, and the remainder driven to the margins of their world, to places like Wales, Ireland, and Northern Scotland. Others suggest that they were more or less peacefully integrated, or widely enslaved by the Anglo-Saxons. It's clear that some of the British were better able to protect themselves than others, as Angus Constum says, those better able to defend themselves banded together and established British kingdoms, such as Cornwall in the south, or the Old Clute in the north, these other neighbours of the Picts. They were also referred to as the people of Strathclyde. Strathclyde was a very early medieval kingdom to the south of Pictish territory. The people of Strathclyde were Britons who had formerly lived under Roman rule and who may have lived around Hadrian's Wall to the north or the south or both. They start to appear in the sources around 600 AD as the Alt Clute, named after their almost impregnable fortress, once called Alt Clute and later Dumbarton. It's now known as Dumbarton Castle. Strathclyde is a later name that appeared in the 800s AD. Dumbarton Castle was the Altclute stronghold. They're named after their castle. It's believed to have the oldest written historical narrative of any fortress in Scotland, meaning it's the first one mentioned in any written sources. It was mentioned first in, I believe, the late 400s AD in a letter written by St. Patrick to the king of the fort at the time. So Altclute, this fortress, is built on a giant plug of volcanic basalt that's 240 feet high and hundreds of millions of years old. Volcanoes! <laughs> and here's another fun detail. Merlin was said to have visited there. Yeah, because there were volcanoes. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Merlin the volcano wizard. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, towards the end of Pictish culture came the Vikings. The Vikings may literally have been the end of the Picts. But there were plenty of other threats, and more likely it was a combination of things that brought the Picts down. Okay, so let's take a look at Pictish history and culture, Jen. The time of the Picts stretches from the late 3rd or early 4th centuries AD to around the 900s AD. At some point, the Picts consolidated into seven kingdoms located in the north, west, and center of Scotland. Kate, Fidlock, Fortriu, Kay, Sersin, Fib, and Fotia, and I probably mispronounced some of those because I do not speak Pictish. The most powerful was Fortriu, and its king was often considered the high king of all the Pictish kingdoms. But the Picts weren't the only people in the region. The Angles in Northumbria, the Scots of Dalriata, the Britons of Strathclyde, and the Vikings all warred for land and domination in this area. There was no time in Pictish history when they were not at war. There is a lot written about Pictish history in the early Middle Ages, but getting into it involves a dive into pseudo-history. Even what we just told you about the seven Pictish kingdoms is kind of pseudo-historical. The sources we have are deeply flawed. The lives of saints, like St. Columba, extremely wrong monks with political and religious agendas, like Bede and Gildas, and pseudo-historical documents like the Chronicle of Alba. Some historians tell us that, especially in the early periods, like the 4th and 6th centuries AD, it's not really possible to write a dependable history of the Picts or even Britain as a whole. There are several origin stories that pin the Picts as being from elsewhere. The Venerable Bede, writing in the 700s AD, says they came from Scythia. Some historians think that's because the Scythians were also a tattooed people, although it's in doubt whether the Picts actually had tattoos, like we've said. Others say Scythia was meant as Scandinavia, although I don't know how that could possibly be because they don't sound the same or look the same and they are not the same at all. So a poem from the Historia Britannum, an 11th century pseudo-history of the British people that's one of the first places to mention King Arthur, interestingly, also 
gives a poetic version of the Pictish origin story. And Jen, I thought it would be fun to read each verse of this in turn. I'm going to hit you with some sweet, sweet poetry. It's poetry about where the Picts came from. How were they named before they came to attain their sovereignty from their own weapons? What was the name of their country? Thracia was the name of their country. That's out of left field. Not so left field. They weren't Thracians. Till they spread their sails after they had resolved to emigrate in the east of Europe. Agathirsi was their name. In the portion of Irkby, from the tattooing of their fair skins, they were called Picti. The Picts, the tribe I speak of, understood traveling over the sea without mean, unworthy deeds, the seed of Geloin, son of Ercoil. Necromancy and idolatry, illusion in a fair and well-walled house, plundering in ships, Bright poems by them were taught. The honoring of shred, which meant rank in this, I guess. And omens, choice of weather, lucky times, the watching the voice of birds, they practiced without disguise. From thence they conquered Alba, the noble nurse of fruitfulness, without destroying the people from the region of Cat to Fortune. Fifty kings of plundering career, every one of the race of Eochach, from Fergus most truly to the victorious Machbrothach, or Macbeth. That's what's in brackets in this translation. Six kings and six times ten of them who attended to bloody plunder. They loved merry forays. They possessed the kingdom of the Kruthnach. What do you get out of this poem, Jen? Well, I mean, to me, it's telling me the picks are fair-haired Thracians who tattooed themselves who were actually really good sailors who came from the east and decided to make a place for themselves by conquering all of, like, Scotland. It's weird because from thence they conquered Alba is a line, but Alba only came into existence towards the end of, like, the Pictish existence. Alba wasn't there. To me, that makes sense, though, because the person writing this down, I don't think is Pictish, right? No, absolutely not. So it's someone else telling their story, and they are telling you the story in a language that appeals to the people who they're telling the story to. Who may be from Alba, for example. There's a lot of names that we don't know of. It says, like, they were necromancers and idolaters, and, you know, they were pagan. They were pirates. They were poets. Pirates and poets, yeah. Do you know what, Jenny? What if they're all origins of, like, Spartacus and his people and, like, the band of rebels who may or may not have made it over the Alps? Done. I solved it. <laughs> it's fun fan fiction. <laughs> it's great fan fiction. It didn't happen. That, that's ridiculous. You mean, like, volcanoes and the vitrified forts like that? <laughs> I said they turned the vitrified forts into mini volcanoes, and that's how they melted the stone. And they did that by, like, lighting super hot fires with maybe a bacon fat fire underneath that just never stopped going. Oh, bacon fat. I don't think any historians have posited bacon fat as like the fuel for like 2000 degree fires that melted the vitrified stone walls. Possibly though. We know from the siege of Rochester Castle, cooking bacon underneath the, the stone walls was what cracked them open. So we know the heat of like a fire like that would actually do some damage to stone. It would leave a mark on it. Yeah, but the point isn't to damage the stone. It's to melt the stone into itself and make it stronger. So it would have had, it would have had to be an even hotter fire than the bacon fat fire is what I'm saying. It would have had to be like bacon fat times 10, like a whole bacon pig. 
It would have to be an entire bacon pig that they just kept under there. I don't know. I'm all about this being a mini volcano that they sort of man-made created, but wasn't actually filled with lava, but sort of might have looked like one. I don't know. I'm off on a limb. It was filled with bacon fat. It was a bacon volcano. Yeah. The historians should call us and ask for our brilliant ideas. Listen, this is just telling me more and more that we are the Historia Augusta. (laughs) (laughs) We are. We're the Historia Augusta. Anyway, where the hell were we? We have just read this wacko poem. Who wrote this episode? All of this is my fault. Bacon volcanoes, that's all I'm going to say. If we're believing in like man-made volcanoes, we might as well also believe in man-made black holes. Bacon black hole. Think about it. Oh, that would be the most delicious black hole. Bacon hole. So, (laughs) So both of these origin stories have something in common. They suggest that the pigs came from elsewhere, somewhere in the east. But both of these accounts are, like we said, pseudo-history and written by non-picks, as so many of our other sources are. There's only one source we know of that can be definitively said to have been written by the picks themselves, and that is a list of names of kings. Weirdly, this may also be what's preserved on the Pictish stones. The king list is part of a larger document called the Pictish Chronicle. Ironically, much of what's in the Pictish Chronicle I don't think was written by actual Picts, but the king list was. And there are a couple different versions of this. The earliest probably dates from the late 900s AD, which would be the end of the Pictish history. So there are roughly 50 or 60 names on the list. It's a little complicated because sometimes it's hard to parse who was actually king of where and when. About half of these are also mentioned in other sources. Yeah, so they're kind of corroborated elsewhere, about half of them. Yeah, we see them repeating somewhere else, so we know that they're probably accurate. So the dates are listed in reference to historical events, some of which we don't actually know the date of. So a lot of the dates associated with individual reigns are contested. Shocker. So the the king list is a giant tangle. It's a giant rabbit hole that we may or may not ever be able to really say is a king list and actually is accurate, but it's fine. It's just a giant Gordian knot that we may never be able to untie. But generally, the list is believed to span the entirety of Pictish history from the early 300s all the way up to the 900s. There are a few things that we can learn just by looking at the king's list. These include... Number one, the reigns of Pictish kings are often short. Almost half of them ruled for under five years. I went through and counted. Number two, it's rare for any king to have been the son of a previous king. And number three, many of the kings were brothers of the previous king. So for the first point, this paints a picture of a volatile kingdom in which kings faced threats from all sides. Many of the kings on the king's list were killed in battle. Others were deposed in violent insurrections. Especially in the early years, it's probably accurate to say that Pictish kings had to be warlords and personally fight in battles. The second item again points to volatility. There were a lot of usurpers, but there were also a lot of brothers taking over the reign when the old king died. Which brings us to another aspect of Pictish culture that's unique. The claim that Picts were matrilineal. Few women's names are mentioned in the Pictish king list, but the medieval sources make the claim that the Picts passed on power through the mother's line, not the father's. The Venerable Bede, a Christian monk who lived in Northumbria and was writing in the 700s, tells us that the Picts were matrilineal. Bede tells us that the Picts sailed from Scythia to Ireland at some point in the ancient past, 
and asked the Irish to give them land to settle on. The Irish said, nope, nopeity nope to puss, nope rocket into the sun. No can doosville, baby doll. No can do, buddy. But they suggested that the pigs sail across the channel to the British Isles. Just go over there and go go cuddle up to the Dalriata. How about you do that? Or just take their land. It's fine as long as it's not our land you're looking for. Exactly. And just to sweeten this deal, they gave the Picts, who hadn't thought to bring any women with them on their trip to establish a new settlement, just gave the Picts some women because women are property. Absolutely. We have no value except in what we can give you from our loins. We're just walking wombs, that's all. Walking incubators. On the condition that if there were any disputes over succession, that the Picts should choose their kings from the mother's line rather than the father's. So kind of giving the Irish some sort of power here. Bede assures us that this is why the Picts continue to follow that custom of matrilineal throne giving to this very day, as everybody knows. We all know that. (laughs) Some historians have argued that the king list backs up the matrilineal theory because when kingship does stay in the family, the more common succession is brothers inheriting from brothers rather than sons from fathers. So other scholars think this is iffy. Assumedly, these brothers had the same fathers as well as the same mothers, which may not always be the case. But when a parent is mentioned in the name, i.e. Brood, son of Melko, it's usually the father's name that's mentioned, not the mother's. Also, they suggest that brothers inheriting is a sign of instability, since kings often had short reigns where their own sons were too young to rule. And that makes a lot of sense to me, more than anything else. Yeah, and another thing here that suggests that the picks weren't necessarily matrilineal is you don't see wives taking over after husbands die. You see no queen regents, which you see in other, like, Celtic tribes to the south. Exactly, and in other cultures, Tuta Valeria, for example. Boudica, Cardamangua. Yeah, like, there are a lot of examples of this, including in Celtic cultures, but you're not really seeing that in the king list. I don't know how representative the king list is of what actually happened, but... The treatment and status of women in Pictish society is fuzzy. Whether or not the Picts were matrilineal, there are no queens listed in the king list as rulers. So it's unlikely this was a feminist utopia. We do have one shred of evidence that women had a certain amount of freedom, as evidenced by the one carving of a huntress on a Pictish stone. We know it was a woman because she was riding side saddle. So there's another interesting document that suggests Pictish women were warriors, but this did not increase their status as the author of this document saw it. It's the Law of the Innocents, a document written around 697 AD by an Irish monk named Adumnan. This is sort of a Geneva Convention of ancient Ireland and Scotland, outlining war atrocities that ought to be forbidden. Adumnan had enough status and prestige to pull together 91 chieftains across the northern Celtic world, from Ireland, Dalriada, and the Pictish kingdoms, to agree to this document, including agreeing to pay fines and penalties for breaking any of its laws. One of the laws had to do with forbidding women to fight in combat. And the thinking goes, if Adumnan had to say it, maybe women were doing this a lot. So it's easy to condemn Adamnon as a total Christian sexist for wanting this law that women shouldn't fight alongside men in battle. But Adamnon tells us a lot of disturbing things about the status of women in Pictish society during this time. Here's a picture he paints of women going to war in the society he knew, according to a contemporary old Irish treatise explaining the origins of the law of innocence. Quote, The work which the best women had to do was to go to battle and battlefield, encounter and camping, 
fighting and hosting, wounding and slaying. On one side of her, she would carry her bag of provisions. On the other, her babe. Her wooden pole upon her back, 30 feet long it was, and had on one end an iron hook, which she would thrust into the tress of some woman in the opposite battalion. Her husband behind her, carrying a fence stake in his hand and flogging her on to battle. For at that time, it was the head of a woman, or her two breasts, which were taken as trophies. Can we just pause and figure this out for a second here? I know, I have so many questions. There's this treatise that is a companion piece to the Law of Innocence that talks about why Adamnan wanted these laws. And it does talk a lot about women's treatment during this time in this area. There's a lot more about women going to war, and he kind of paints it as women not going to war necessarily because they were warriors as sort of like this empowering thing, but going to war because they were forced to by their husbands and forced into these really violent situations and just sort of slaughtered unnecessarily. He's basically saying these are non-combatants who should be treated like non-combatants and not be forced to fight when they can't. He also says other things about how women were treated in peacetime, like how they were made to live outside the walls of fortresses. And like, there's all this weird stuff about how they had to like spin the, um, oh, what's that thing when you have like a skewer of meat and you're spinning it over a fire? Like spit, spit. That's what it is. A spit. It's a spit. Like women had to like spin the spit of meat over the fire all the time in a pit and, you know, all these horrible things. Yeah, they were the rotisserie, man. If you want that delicious rotisserie meat, someone's got to spin that spit. Right. If you want the bacon pig to be cooked on all sides. Evenly cooked on all sides. Right. So there's all this stuff about, you know, women being treated badly and made to spin the bacon pig and all that shit. And like, he says a lot about how women are the mothers of your children and you must revere them as the mothers of children. And I feel like, you know, as a modern feminist, I do not like being reduced to my childbearing as the only thing of value about me. I mean, as a modern feminist, I feel like this woman is like, hey, I'm going into battle because my husband is beating me into it. But also at the same time, I have my babe strapped on one hip, my provisions on the other, and I'm still fighting. Like, there's something kind of incredible about that. I don't approve of it. But also something kind of domestic violence-y about it. Absolutely. Well, that's why I don't approve of it. It's not like she's saying, I want to do this. I'm going to go into fight. She's being forced to do it. Like you can see an empowering, like she's not letting anything stop her. She's not being put in a place. But the problem is like, it's the exact reverse of it because a guy is behind her beating her and forcing her to do it. I mean, I think what he's trying to say here is like, don't treat women like dirt. I mean, the bar is so low. So low. It's just (laughs) underground. But anyway, I think that there are two things that I glean from this. Number one, remember Adumnan was a Christian monk and he might have been demonizing this practice because he doesn't like to see women in battle. Number two, you get a picture of a people for whom the situation was very much not ideal. Like they didn't have the luxury of having non-combatants. Everybody who could fight, who was able-bodied had to fight. So you might see women on the battlefield. They're not necessarily properly armed and they don't necessarily know how to fight, but everybody has to take up arms and fight because this is a people that doesn't have the luxury of designating some people as non-combatants. Because the situation is that desperate. That's the picture I'm picking up here. To me, that makes a lot of sense. And we look at it, we see it in other like Germanic cultures where the women follow their men into battle. And in Scythian culture, you know, we know that some women definitely fought willingly as warriors. 
But what we're seeing here is like other women did not have that luxury. They just had to go into battle. Ill-prepared as they were. That's what I'm getting from this description of Pictish women in battle, which, you know, depending on the agenda may or may not be true. But you also get the sense that Adumnan may have been an eyewitness to some atrocities. So I'm going to give you another piece of this treatise. In this treatise, he tells a very colorful story about how Adumnan and his mom came upon a battlefield and what they witnessed there. Quote, Then she, Adumnan's mom, went on her son's back. So he's carrying his mom on his back and just going somewhere. That is a good mode of transportation. Then she, Adumnan's mom, went on her son's back until they chanced to come upon a battlefield. Such was the thickness of the slaughter into which they came to, that the souls of one woman would touch the neck of another. Though they beheld the battlefield, they saw nothing more touching and pitiful than the head of a woman in one place and the body in another, and her little babe upon the breasts of the corpse, a stream of milk upon one of its cheeks, and a stream of blood upon the other. Adumnan, because he was a saint, brought this beheaded woman back to life with his magical saintly skills. And she and Adumnan's mom then proceeded to gang up on him and demand that he take it as his personal mission to free all the women of the Western world from bondage and inhumane treatment. Yes. Yes. And thus the law of the innocence was born. Well, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like a truthful psychological document so much as like a saintly, acryphical document. (laughs) Sure. But it's a bit like how the sausage gets made. As long as we get the job done, I don't need to know. But honestly, it is nice to see, even though I'm sure that like this is, you know, from a feminist lens, I have issues with it. But it is nice to see that there is someone who is looking at the situation and saying, we should not see a battlefield where there's a baby on a woman's breast and like on one cheek is breast milk and on the other is blood because there is something really wrong with whatever has happened here. Not necessarily wrong with their society, but wrong with the situation that put people into this. Yeah. So the law of innocence primarily focused on guaranteeing the immunity of non-combatants in war. One of the laws stipulates that, quote, whoever slays a woman, his right hand and his left foot shall be cut off before death and then he shall die. You're going to know what he did when you see that corpse. Right. First, you cut off your right hand and your left foot and then you kill the person. That has a lot to do with like Christianity and what they believe like when the rapture comes that your whole body needs to be whole in order for you to ascend. And there's a lot there to unpack, really. I think in this instance, the idea of disfiguring the body like that to a rapidly Christianizing country is so terrifying because it means that like when it comes to be resurrected, they will be missing those bits. So if a woman committed a crime that carried the death penalty, like murder, arson, or stealing from a church, because of course, she had to be set adrift in a boat with one paddle and one container of gruel. This way, God decided her fate and nobody had to violate the prior rule about killing a woman. And other laws stipulated that no women should be allowed to fight in wars, apparently for humanitarian reasons, but also control. A lot of the time, these laws where it's like we're not allowed to kill a woman or puncture a king's skin or whatever just lead to like even worse things that you do to the person to avoid this other thing. Well, totally. And the whole like the killing a woman, but you can't kill her. So you set her adrift with one paddle and the gruel. What does that sound like to me? It's just exposure like we see in all of Greek mythology. Yeah, it's like exposing the baby to the elements and maybe a friendly wolf will come along and suckle that baby, but like really not. (laughs) That is not happening. That's just wishful thinking. Really, that baby is going to die. And that's why nine times out of 10, the king or queen in this story is like, that can't be my son because it was exposed at birth. I could see why they'd make that assumption. Yeah. (laughs) So we've told you a few Pictish origin stories. 
some of them factually dubious. And here's one more. The first king of the Picts was the very mythical Kruthni. He had seven sons, so he's very fertile, to whom he gave the seven kingdoms of Pictland. It's a bit hard to track the chronology of Pictish history from the king list after this because so many of the kings are mythical, especially the early ones. But one name that we see repeating over and over in these lists is the name Brood or Bridey. They are kind of the same name. This name repeats so much that some scholars believe it was actually a title. So there's one king, Brood or Bridey, in particular that we want to talk about, Brood I, who ruled from about 554 to 584 AD. This is a king who probably existed because you find his name in a lot of other sources. One of those sources is the life of St. Columba, a missionary active in Pictland who was later canonized. The life of St. Columba tells a story of King Brood. Quote, when the St. Columba made his first journey to King Brood, it happened that the king, elated by the pride of royalty, acted haughtily and would not open his gates on the first arrival of the blessed man. When the man of God observed this, he approached the folding doors with his companions, and having first formed upon them the sign of the cross of our Lord, he then knocked at and laid his hand upon the gate, which instantly flew open of its own accord. Of course it did. I just had that exact same thought. <laughs> it's like, of course it fucking did. The bolts, <laughs> sorry, I can't. <laughs> the bolts having been driven back with great force, the saint and his companions then passed through the gate thus speedily opened. And when the king learned what had occurred, he and his counselors were filled with alarm. And immediately setting out from the palace, he advanced to meet with due respect the blessed man, whom he addressed in the most conciliating and respectful language. And ever after from that day, so long as he lived, the king held this holy and revered man in very great honor, as was due. St. Columba does not understand about boundaries. <laughs> no! <laughs> like, King Brood I, I'm really on his side. I think his privacy was not being respected. I mean, as a person living in today's world, I completely agree. As someone who grew up very Christian, I get what they're saying here. I went to Catholic school. Like, I, I grew up very religious. Now, I'm very much a lapsed Catholic, but I, I can see from a standpoint of like, what would it have been like to be a missionary in these foreign places? And I remember reading different things about the lives of saints. And they're fascinating because the lives of saints are one of the places where you hear the stories of people who believed your faith long ago, who a lot of times died for your faith, did things that were considered miraculous or above and beyond for your faith, right? So this going into like a hostile territory, knocking open the doors and saying, I'm going to give you salvation and the love of God is interesting. Because remember, a lot of these scenes wound up dead. Shocker. Because like, Brood was like, hey, mate, you knocked down my doors. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to non-consensually break open your door. It's fine. So shall we just continue on now? Shall we move on? <laughs> this suggests that Christianization began early in the Pictish kingdom, as early as the 500s AD. You can also trace the Christianization of Pictland through the Pictish stones. We've already told you about the class 1 Pictish stones, which contain only non-Christian artwork. But the other two classes of stones show the progression of Christianity in Pictish culture. Class 2 stones, dating from around the 8th and 9th century AD, show a combination of Pictish and Christian symbols, 
Whereas the class three stones show only Christian symbols. Like the class three stones in particular are just jaw droppingly gorgeous. Like I have seen pictures of these stones and you just, your jaw is on the fucking floor. They're so beautiful with elaborately decorated crosses that start to look like the maze-like artwork in the Book of Kells, but in stone. And they also start to look like other Celtic Christian artwork, sacrificing their iconically Pictish sensibility. And this may be a picture in stone of what happened to the Picts. They weren't conquered so much as assimilated and Christianized. There's a specific story of assimilation that we can see if we look at the last king of the Picts, Kenneth I. Kenneth I is one of those kings who was also probably real because he's referred to in many different ancient sources as well as the king list. He was originally a king of the Dalriada. The Picts at one point conquered Dalriada, but according to the Pictish Chronicle, the Dalriadan king, Kenneth I, came to seize control of Pictland around 843 AD. How this happened is fuzzy, but this is where the kingdoms of Dalriada and Pictland were united, creating a new kingdom, the Kingdom of Alba, sometimes referred to as the Kingdom of Scotland, as the Dalriada were sometimes referred to as Scots or Scotti in the medieval sources. So anyway, Kenneth I's takeover of Pictland was the start of the assimilation between the Picts and other Celtic communities that probably started much earlier on with Christianization. This assimilation probably did not happen without violence. Reed definitely did not happen without violence. Many historians suggest that Kenneth I would not have been able to take control of Pickland had Pickland not been severely weakened by prior wars. So let's talk about some of those prior wars, shall we? Of course we're gonna. Whose podcast do you think this is? <laughs> is it gory and gross? Then we're putting it in there. So during the 7th century, a people called the Northumbrians, who we've talked about already, were raiding and conquering up north. So the Northumbrians at the time were led by a man named Egfrith. He was their king. He comes up later. At some point, they conquered and subjugated the Picts, and we don't know a lot about this time in Pictish history, but we can conjecture that it must have been pretty bad because the Picts prepare to rebel. Northumbrians clashed with the Pictish rebels in 670 AD in the Battle of the Two Rivers. According to the ancient sources, the Pictish dead filled the two rivers so that the Northumbrian cavalry could cross the rivers and chase down the survivors without getting their feet wet. After this, the Northumbrians re-enslaved the Picts, abusing and subjugating them for the next 14 years. They deposed the Pictish king dressed and installed another king, Ecfrith's cousin Brood. But this Brood turned out to be bad news for the Northumbrians because he defeated them in battle in 685 AD, luring the Northumbrians into a trap in the mountains with a feigned retreat, killing Ecfrith, decimating his army, and going on to slaughter all the Northumbrian men, women, and children they found living in their territory. This broke the Northumbrian hold in the north, but still the Picts were beset by violence. In the next 150 years or so, after King Brood, there were 20 more kings, 13 of which had reigns lasting less than five years. There was a lot of violent turnover. Around this time, the Vikings came onto the scene and they devastated Pictish communities. First, they came to the Orkney Islands, which had a significant Pictish population. Some have referred to the Orkneys as the Eighth Pictish Kingdom. According to the historian Norvigae, I probably mispronounced that, written in the thousands or maybe 1100s AD, the Picts of Orkney, quote, 
did marvels in the morning and the evening in building towns, but at midday they entirely lost all their strength and lurked through fear in underground houses, which is super interesting because if you think about Scara Bray, which is in the Orkneys, right? Those were underground houses that were, I mean, a lot older than this period. They were from the Neolithic or so, but that was, you know, a house that was, that was a thing back then, right? That was a community. I mean, it looks like little hobbit holes. Yeah, I think they were built in a giant midden. So wait. Okay, so like Scarabray is a bunch of houses that they built. Mm -hmm. In the Orkney Islands. In the Orkney Islands that they deliberately built inside of a midden. What's a midden? A midden is an ancient world landfill. That makes no sense to me because rats. Maybe they had ratters to attack the rats, like in Hadrian's Wall. Maybe they were hiding from something. Vikings? The Pictish Beast. They were hiding from the Pictish Beast. See, I was going to say Vikings. I was going to bring it full circle. <laughs> anyway, according to this chronicle that I just read you, the Vikings, quote, stripped these races of their ancient settlements, destroyed them wholly, and subdued the islands to themselves. This probably happened in the late 700s AD. From there, the Vikings expanded to the Shetlands and Outer Hebrides, then the Firth of Clyde, which is in southwestern Scotland. With their longboats, they harassed and pillaged the kingdoms of Caithness, Dalriada, and elsewhere in Pictland. In 839, the Picts united with the Dalriada to face the Vikings in a disastrous battle in which the entire Pictish ruling family and warrior class was completely wiped out. The Picts never really recovered, leaving the door open for Kenneth I to take charge in 843, just four years later. By the time of Kenneth I's grandsons, the kingdom of the Picts was no more. What took its place was the kingdom of Alba, combining the Dalriada or the Scots and the Picts. And it's clear which culture was dominant in that kingdom. The Dalriada or Scots were speakers of a Gaelic language, and by the 1000s AD, a little more than 150 years later, the Pictish language had disappeared, and so had Pictish identity. Everyone living in this area thought of themselves as Scots. But that doesn't mean that the Picts were really gone. In 2013, scientists discovered a genetic marker on the Y chromosome that could be traced back to Pictish ancestors. They tested 3,000 men living in Scotland and England and found that 1 in 10 men living in Scotland were of Pictish descent. So maybe the Picts never really left us. Maybe they've been here the whole time. So that's it for this week. Join us again in two weeks when we talk about the Pictish Beast or something else. We're not sure yet. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we're pretty sure it's going to be all about the Pictish Beast because Jen and I have been getting into a lot of very passionate text arguments about that. We've been getting into text feuds over this. Oh, we're so angry at each other. It's been a whole thing. But we might talk about something else. I don't know. It depends on what we get together after this episode and when. We also have other things on deck. I mean, we might have Liv on to talk about Hadrian. Or we might do that before this episode. I don't know how things are going to fall. So in the meantime, come see us on social at Ancient His Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Starting at just $2 a month, you can get ad-free episodes and exclusive content. So we have one Patreon member to thank today, don't we, Jen? We do. Do you want to shout them out, Jenny? Yes, and I apologize in advance if I mispronounce your name, but hopefully I don't. Alec Himwich, thank you so much for being our patron. And you know, your patronage is what helps keep the lights on and keeps this podcast going. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two weeks. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.